3: Website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Danproft and at Danproft Show. The data, the data, the data. As we uh, mentioned earlier in the show, Neil Ferguson, who is the lead author of that Imperial College London study that the media ran with without providing contextual information about the modeling, like the premises upon which it was based, to feed hysteria and provide the justification for the philosophy that there's no such thing as an overreaction, which has been flatly rejected on this show and all kinds of substantive examples. He uh, revised down his projection, you know, based on what England has actually done. And by the way, breaking news this morning, Bojo has tested positive for coronavirus mild case. Apparently 500,000 deaths were projected in Britain by the initial model from Neil Ferguson Imperial College London. Uh, revised it down to 20,000 yesterday, not to exceed 20,000 based on the actions that the UK has taken. Right. Because you have to inform your models with the real world evidence. Once the premises from which you based your modeling no longer hold, for example, the premise that nobody does anything when in point of fact, a lot of people are doing a lot of things, but that level of texture won't be brought to you by the D.C. Press Corps, but it was brought to you by Dr. Deborah Burks yesterday at the White House COVID Task Force briefing.
4: Um, this is really quite important. If you remember, that was the report that said there would be 500,000 deaths in the U.K. and 2.2 million deaths in the United States. They've adjusted that number in the U.K. to 20,000. So if half a million to 20,000. We're looking into this in great detail to understand that adjustment. In the model, either you have to have a large group of people who are asymptomatic, who have never presented for any test, in order to have the kind of numbers that were predicted. So we're working very hard to get that antibody test because that's a good way to figure out who are all these people under here and do they exist. Or we have the transmission completely wrong. So these are the things we're looking at because the predictions of the models don't match the reality on the ground.
3: Indeed. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Elena Attenberg. She has served as a health policy advisor in Dutch and European parliaments, currently an assistant professor at the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont, and Adam Atherley, professor and director of the Center for Health Services Research at the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont, to the Catamounts, if I remember correctly. Uh, Very good. Uh, Doctors Altenberg and Atherley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: Oh, thank you! Thank you so much for having us.
3: So, um, your reaction to uh, Dr. Burks's reaction to the revision of that Imperial College London study that was given so much air.
5: Our point that the point that we've been making for consistently for about a week now is that the models themselves are fine, um, but we we really lack the key inputs. Uh, just as you, um, you 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 just said, we need more accurate data, and. Um, if you look at the Oxford report versus the impor- Imperial College reports, um, the question remains, what is the actual spread in the population? And we, we just don't know. It depends, and, and we don't have the right data to answer that question right now. You know, And I, I would also add that if you looked at the, um, I think the Imperial College report has gotten
6: a lot of attention, but there's also a, a, you know, the CDC also did an analysis. And what the CDC found was, depending on what you Feed into your model, you get a prediction of somewhere between 200,000 people dying and 1.7 million dying, and the the trouble is that the variables that really drive those differences between a really really bad flu season and a catastrophe just are were not known at the time they were doing the
3: models. Well, I mean, there and there's there's others too. Uh, I mean, you know, these these uh, 80,000. It could, could lead to more than 80,000 deaths and overwhelm hospital capacity nationally as soon as early April. New research coming to us from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington School of Medicine, analyzing local and national and international uh, level data. Uh, and, and I mentioned this, so there's another one to throw onto the pyre. And I mentioned this before, but four years after H1N1, There was a study that was published in a journal for epidemiology by a bunch of public health academics like yourselves uh, that reviewed 77 estimates of the case fatality risk from 50 published studies, about a third of which were published in the first nine months of the pandemic. From the uh, results, the results summary, we identified very substantial heterogeneity in published estimates, ranging from less than one to more than 10,000 deaths per 100,000 cases or infections. That's quite a range so how much should we be at this point in real time, as, as we were working with incomplete data, as you're describing, how much should we be basing, you know, massive public policy decisions, both on the health side and the economic side, on uh, projected fatality rates?
5: Instead of answering that question, I think that what we want to be talking about is what we can do right now. You know, there's the story of testing, 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 which is important But the question I think that should be answered soon is, what type of data do we really want to be collecting? What do we want to spend our resources on the most right now to answer the most important questions? I basically compare it to, let's say, the German approach and the Icelandic approach. In Germany, they say, we need to be spending, you know, the majority of our resources to more testing, which is great. It's, it's almost ideal. Iceland is probably more um, realistic in the approach in the sense that they say, well, let's say that we don't have the resource or the manpower right now to do massive testing, at best we can do um, a random sample and we can be testing a true representative portion of the population. And in their case, they started, started off testing about 1.5% of the population. And that would allow us to draw the type of comparisons that you were talking about in that, in that other study. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we would be able to ex- extract the information we have from the sample to the, the real big US population. And uh, we could actually do the types of estimates that we so badly need to rerun these models. But
3: here's the issue, and and I'm all for what you just said. I've been saying that from the beginning. I don't understand why there's not uh, the the sort of sampling you would do in polling to get a representative distribution of the population so that you could make some reasonable projections within a 95% confidence interval. I agree with that. Here's what we got yesterday on this show from Dr. Gary Slutkin, who's a former WHO director of intervention, epidemiologist, he said here's how we do testing because we I asked him the same question that you're posing. He said here's how we do testing. We do uh, people presenting symptoms, then we do contact contact tracing, test, you know testing of those they came in contact with to the extent we can determine, then frontline healthcare workers and then the general population. And you know, and he basically said, you know, with 50,000 tests a day, maybe ramping up to 75,000 tests a day, we're not there yet where we can start to work down that progression. And I don't know if that's a sensible progression or not, but he said that this is how we handle uh, viral outbreaks the, in terms of the testing protocols. And so it seems like the some of the the public health professionals that are the modelers and the statisticians need to get with some of those that are the managers, like Dr. Gary Slutkin.
6: Yeah. Now I think that's that's a, it, it, uh, we've run into that exact same discussion, and. Oh one of the things about most of the models that were used to sort of make this decision uh, to close down the economy is that they were not thinking about the economic effect and how do you balance the cost of the program with the benefits of the program um you know we make these we make decisions to either spend money or not spend money in a way that costs lives all the time i mean we do that as a society we do that as individuals we do Car safety, we decide what drugs we'll pay for. We sort of make these decisions both at an individual and a policy level to accept more risk in order to save money um, uh, very, very often. What's unique here is, to my knowledge, we've never had a trade-off with the magnitude and the sort of scale that we're talking about now, where you're talking about trading millions of lives for trillions of dollars. I mean, I, I think that's Kind of un, unprecedented, and so when you think about the typical models you use when you think about an, an outbreak like this you 're not talking about spending four trillion dollars to prevent it, so usually the economics of this aren 't built into it and you know again NBER, the National Bureau for Economic Research has done some very nice modeling sort of saying how do you Bring the balance of thinking about the economic impact with the health impact in together.
3: She is uh, Alina Attenberg. She's uh, served as a health policy advisor in Dutch and European parliaments, currently an assistant professor at the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont, and Adam Atherley, professor and director of the Center for Health Services Research at the Larner College of Medicine, also at the University of Vermont. Uh, Doctors, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights.
5: Thank you for having us. Thank
3: you.
0: Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about New York State and New York City, the epicenter of the outbreak. Again, New York State and New Jersey represent more than half of the total cases in the United States. More than half the total new cases, as well as uh, Dr. Deborah Birx uh, mentioned at Thursday night's briefing. And uh, something else she mentioned I want to get to, because at uh, uh, Cuomo's press conference earlier this week, you know, he got a little snotty. FEMA saying we're sending 400 ventilators. What am I going to do with 400 ventilators when I need 30,000? You pick the 26,000 people who are going to die because you only send 4,000 ventilators. You know, this is this is leadership the sort of blame shifting and uh, cheap shotting you think uh, uh, FEMA is in the business of uh, or anybody else's is, is in the business of saying who should live and who should die uh, ironically it's uh, interesting as uh, a proponent of government run healthcare uh, that would be actually that very system who lives and who dies as so dictated by the state and Cuomo uh, Cuomo's getting high marks from his press conferences and Dem circles and of course Uh, Now is on the betting board as a possible Democrat POTUS nominee, uh, Joe Biden, as he wanders around from talk show to talk show, stumbling over himself. And he's getting help in uh, the D.C. press corps from CNN contributors like Jill Filipovic, who uh, thank God for Andrew Cuomo. And she recounts what I just uh, uh, reminded you of, some of his bitchiness. And that's what it is. He's a tough New Yorker. I'm sure he can hear it. He and his brother Fredo. Uh, some of his bitchiness in response to the effort to move heaven and earth to do everything humanly possible to help New York City and New York State. As President Trump uh, mentioned at the press con- at the press briefing last night, uh, that uh, medical ship that was going to be weeks away is now leaving Norfolk, Virginia, for New York City on Saturday to arrive Monday. And he'll be at the send off, as he said. And then something Deborah Burke said about uh, those resources. It's not just uh, uh, the reporting on some of the modeling that has been reckless and ignorant. It's also the reporting on the supplies that are being cobbled together, that are being aggregated, and that are being distributed. So, uh, again, Dr. Burke's on uh, ventilators and other uh, medical equipment that's needed, and most— most notably in New York State.
4: And then finally, the situation about ventilators. We were reassured and meeting with our colleagues in New York that there are still ICU beds remaining, and there's still significant over 1,000 or 2,000 ventilators that have not been utilized yet. Please, for the reassurance of people around the world, to wake up this morning and look at people talking about creating DNR situations, do not resuscitate situations for patients. There is no situation in the United States right now that warrants that kind of discussion. You can be thinking about it in a hospital, certainly many hospitals talk about this on a daily basis, but to say that to the American people, to make the implication That when they need a hospital bed, it's not going to be there. Or when they need that ventilator, it's not going to be there. We don't have an evidence of that right now. Uh,
3: uh, And yet, Andrew Cuomo was saying, you pick who lives and who dies. And thus the the talk of DNR orders. We don't have that situation anywhere in the country, Dr. Deborah Burke said on Thursday evening. Uh, Mike Pence was on with Stuart Varney on Fox Business this morning. And uh, he uh, addressed the New York City situation as well, what uh, the administration is doing.
7: What we're seeing across the country is that tens of millions of Americans are literally putting into practice uh, the president's coronavirus guidelines, 15 days to slow the spread. And they're also listening very carefully, Stuart, to state and local authorities in areas where the coronavirus outbreak has been more significant. And we're particularly focused, of course, in in the Seattle area and California. But now with more than half of the coronavirus cases in America being uh, in the greater New York City area, we're flowing resources, we're flowing supplies, uh, we're we're giving guidance and and fully supporting the efforts of of Governor Murphy in New Jersey, Governor Cuomo uh, in New York. Right, Governor
3: Cuomo in New York, and um, he went on to talk about uh, supporting uh, the governors, uh, even the ones that are a bit irascible.
7: Uh, And we're going to literally be uh, examining the data on a county-by-county basis. There's going to be areas of the country where we just, we we have to support our governors and, and the mitigation efforts have to stay very strong and in some cases even become stronger. But for much of the country where the outbreak is very limited, uh, the president is anxious to give guidance based on the data to our governors so that they can decide uh, whether it be reopening businesses or reopening schools uh, about the best way uh, to open our country up again.
3: And uh, Pence also uh, talked about uh, the testing, uh, putting the number at uh, 550,000 tests at this point. Again, you're Clipping along at uh, now it seems north of 50,000 tests a day, uh, b- perhaps getting to 75,000 tests a day, the combination of what's being done through federal efforts as well as what's being done at the local levels and reporting up to the CDC so all of this data can be aggregated and inform the decision-making, both at the federal level and, as Penn said, at the state level. Uh, something else, too, from last night. Uh, Dr. Tony Fauci, where's Tony Fauci? Oh, he's at the briefing. Yeah, Not trending on Twitter anymore. Hmm. Uh, Tony Fauci also tackled the issue of the antivirals. This is important as well, because now you're not just talking about the mitigation efforts or talking about another aspect of the mitigation efforts, which is actual treatment. Right. Uh, the mitigation efforts, Tony Fauci uh, expressed a note of optimism, and he's a pretty reserved guy, pretty conservative guy to, to uh, lean one way or the other rather than just detail what he understands to be true and sort of leave it at a we'll see until we know. But um, listen to what Fauci had to say about the uh, antiviral therapy trials going on presently.
8: I mean, we keep getting asked about therapies. There's a whole... A menu of therapies that are going into clinical trial. As I've told you all, and I'll repeat it again, the best way to get the best drug as quickly as possible is to do a randomized controlled trial so that you know, is it safe and it's effective? If it's not effective, get it off the board and go to the next thing. If it is effective, get it out to the people that need it. So you're going to be hearing over the next month or more about different drugs that are going to go into these randomized controlled trials. And I feel confident knowing about what this virus is and what we can do with it, that we will have some sort of therapy that give at least a partial, if not a very good protection in in preventing progression of disease. And we'll be back here talking about that a lot, I'm sure.
3: Thank you. I'm sure you will. And uh, that's an encouraging note from, you know, the CDC's point man for infectious disease. Uh, It speaks to, uh, this is just anecdotal, but uh, nevertheless relevant. And maybe uh, it's anecdotes like this that are encouraging Tony Fauci, as he so expressed. Uh, Phil Back, who is the founder and CEO of uh, an exchange-traded fund, Uh, That's not relevant. It's just the gentleman who tweeted this out. Uh, The tweet, family friend, healthy male between 65 to 70, was about to go on a ventilator last night for COVID at NYC Hospital. They gave him the new drug cocktail, hydroxychloroquine and whatever else. uh, The z pack, right? Uh, Ostensibly. Gave him the new drug cocktail, woke up this a.m. breathing easily and no fever. First-hand story. Hopefully, per this story and Tony Fauci's optimism, we'll be hearing a lot more of those stories. This is Dan Proft.
4: You're
3: listening to The
0: Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show at uh, Thursday night's briefing. President Trump was itchy to get uh, people back to work because, as he said, people are itchy to get back to work. we got to get this economy going again. You uh, can keep sending out checks, but we have to have people providing services and producing things because that's what Americans do.
9: We have to get back to work. Our people want to work. They want to go back. They have to go back and uh We're going to be talking about dates. We're going to be talking uh, with a lot of great professionals. But this is a country that was built on getting it done. And our people want to go back to work. I'm hearing I'm hearing it loud and clear from everybody. So we'll see what uh, what happens. We're going to have a lot more information early next week and we'll be reporting that back. But I just want to leave it with you. We have to go back. This is the United States of America. They don't want to sit around and wait, and they'll be practicing. And by the way, a lot of people misinterpret when I say go back. They're going to be practicing as much as you can, social distancing and washing your hands and not shaking hands and all of the things that we talk about so much. But they have to go back to work. Our country has to go back. Our country is based on that. And uh, I think it's going to happen pretty quickly. I think it's going to happen pretty quickly. A lot of progress is made, but we've got to go back to work. We may take sections of our country. We may take large sections of our country that aren't so seriously affected, and we may do it that way. But uh, we've got to start the process pretty soon.
3: We'll have to talk about exactly how that would work. And I assume there'll be more details coming in the in the coming days and weeks, depending on the uh, success in containing the spread of the virus. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Brian Riedel, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, former chief economist to Ohio Senator Rob Portman, staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. Brian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Before we uh, talk about uh, the uh, disaster relief package, all $2 trillion, well, $6 trillion, really, worth of it, the president talking about, uh, and this has been uh, bubbling for a few days now, Getting back to work, number one, that Americans are urging to do so. And number two, that places may not be ready to reenter the stream of commerce at the same time. So New York City may not be ready to go, but a lot of mid to western states may be. And uh, how how would that look, though, in terms of, quote, unquote, opening up the economy and is it even within the power of the federal government to do it since it's sort of a state-by-state decision?
2: Yeah, it's not really in the power of the federal government because, A, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's governors who, who legally have the power to make those decisions. But there's also families are going to make that decision. You know, at a certain right. point, even if the governor says, okay, the economy is open, everyone go to work, there's a lot of people who are going to say, I'm not sending my kids to school. I'm not going to work. You, the government can do whatever they want. We're staying in until we feel safe. Additionally, for the economy – That will help local businesses, but when you have an interconnected economy where you get a lot of supply chains that that cross the country, it it will be a challenge to have one part of the economy open and another part of the economy closed because we're all interconnected.
3: It seems to me it's as much sort of psychic as it is substantive in terms of uh, economic policy.
2: It is. People have to feel confident and ready my concern look i'm an economist i want to open the economy as fast as possible i'm looking at the numbers right now this is going to cost us about a trillion dollars a month but we're not going to get it open until people feel safe it really doesn't even matter what the president or governors say until people feel like either we have the virus under control or we have enough testing or some sort of strategy where even if the virus isn't totally under control, people still feel safe. We're just not going to get the economy open. We have to fix the health part first. And I say this as an economist who's terrified of the economic ramifications.
3: Well, and it seems to me like, like the, those who suggest there's no opportunity for some sort of balanced approach are wrong that the, perhaps the uh, watershed moment will be when uh, Tony Fauci or Deborah Burke says, we flatten the curve and we're on the downside now. As you actually see, start to see cases go down uh, and, perhaps, and, and no hot, new hot spots emerge, then you can start to see maybe people coming out of the shadows and saying, I feel safe to get back to work and get back to life.
2: I think that's what it takes. When, when we feel like we flatten the curve, when also hospitals are reporting that they have the capacity to deal with new cases, That's going to psychologically help a lot of people feel like that they're not going to they're not going to face an overwhelmed hospital system that can't serve them. But I think we're also going to kind of need to do something like what South Korea is doing, where there's just massive, massive, easy testing for people. And that's when people will be able to feel confident that if somebody is coming down with coronavirus, it can be discovered very quickly, even before they show a lot of symptoms and, and that way you you're can kind of segregate the people who might have it from the people who don't. That will kind of build psychologically the momentum for people to, to end their lockdowns.
3: Uh, when we come back with uh, Brian Riedel, I want to pick up the health implications of the shutdown, uh, the underreported aspect of health implications for wrecking people economically. Well, more with Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, former chief economist to uh, Ohio Senator Rob Portman right after this.
10: See me and Julio down by the school yard.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Proft Show.
3: We're back with Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, former chief economist to Ohio Senator Rob Portman and staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. We were just talking about uh, how quickly we can get everybody back to work. Uh, Trump is itching to get people back to work. I think he's right in saying a lot of people are itching to get back to work. Uh, You know, season three of Ozark will help this weekend, but that's just this weekend. If you're a binge watcher, probably. Uh, and meanwhile you have uh, titans of industry like Bill Gates saying the entire nation needs to be shut down for six to ten weeks. So I'm, I'm sure that's coming from a genuine place, but that's not helpful.
2: Yeah, we just don't know yet. Uh, you know, my hope has been that we can get the economy back sometime in May is, is my hope. Uh, that, might, that might be optimistic. I think once you go past June 1st, you start to get past the point of no return unfortunately for a lot of small businesses. The government is throwing a lot of money at small businesses and large businesses um, but but you know they're going they're not covering all the gaps they're not paying all the expenses and you're trying to hope that these companies and, and a lot of families can basically hold it together with duct tape you know as long as they can. but once you start talking about shutting down the summer, uh, you, you, then I think you're, you're past the point where the economy, can quickly recover with all businesses and families still intact. That's when you start having permanent long-term damage.
3: Well, and just to make this concrete, uh, you know, a question was put to the president at Thursday night's briefing uh, about National Restaurant Association. Their estimates that uh, 3% of restaurants in this country at present will not reopen their doors. I mean, they, they put the number of restaurant locations in the, in the nation at north of a million. So let's use a million as a round number. That's 30,000 restaurants. And it could go up. To 14 uh, percent overall in the next 30 days. So now you're talking about uh, upwards of 150,000 restaurants who will not uh, reopen their doors. I mean that that that's what we're talking about here. You're laying off uh, for some for for the foreseeable future in travel and hospitality lodging, uh, millions upon millions of Americans.
5: well right, and that, and
2: that that's the economic danger. What economists are saying right now is, as long as you can provide enough aid. To, to keep businesses open and to keep families afloat, there's no reason that once the lockdown ends, the economy should go right back to where it was. You're still going to have the same demand. You could still have the same business. Everything should go right back to where it was, unless you lose businesses and families in the meantime. Right. And the, the, the aid package being passed right now has a lot of great provisions to try to keep these businesses afloat. But I think the Restaurant Association is correct that once you start going longer and longer, once you start going months there are going to be businesses that fall through the cracks that aren't aided enough. And that's when you have millions of unemployed. You have millions of, of businesses that are become long-term unemployed, not just furloughed. And that's when a short V-shaped recession becomes a long recession, possibly a depression. That's why, as an economist, I'm worried.
3: You know, and and as an economist, you, you know that uh, life is about making trade-offs. There's this notion called opportunity cost. And, and so we speak to uh, the the public health impact of wrecking people financially, people feeling like they're wrecked financially. Uh, going back to some studies that were done after the Great Recession of 2008, University of Oxford looked at uh, suicide data before and after the recession. They uh, found more than 10,000 quote-unquote economic suicides associated with the recession across U.S., Canada, and Europe. The uh, British medical journal, The Lancet, Estimated the U.S. suffered 4,750 excess suicide deaths after the 2008 recession. Uh, Steve Moore and um, uh, Rob Arnett writing in The Hill are going through this as well, looking at uh, the medical research here. For every 1% rise in unemployment, uh, you get one additional suicide for every 100,000 people. You know, roughly speaking here, this is, again, the the, the number crunching. Uh, and uh, they talk about, too, the increase in you know, stress, which increases the likelihood of heart attack, particularly in people that are older and so on and so forth. So this idea that you can wreck people economically and the only cost you're imposing is an economic one, that's not really being presented with full context.
2: Yeah, that, that's right. This is a trade off. And, you know, I think we, we all we all agree that the off, you know, shouldn't result in us not not doing all we can for public health. But there is a the trade-off, especially when you go from a light recession to a deep recession or even a depression. You, as you mentioned, there, there's significant suicides. Uh, also, as also you mentioned, long-term unemployment is, is, is terrible for health. It's stress. It, poverty, which, which is, you're going to have a lot more of, poverty is bad for health. It, 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 people who are poor don't eat as well. They have more stress. Uh, you're going to have a lot of bad outcomes from a lot of individuals that have to be taken into account. That's not to say that we should kick everybody out into the streets right now, but, but the, the economic impact has to be taken into account. You also have a government that, will be, you know, the longer this goes, will be increasingly starved of revenue, and programs people depend on might eventually start to get shortchanged because the economy is limiting the government from providing certain benefits that benefit people as well. That can have effects on
3: health. Uh, some of those, uh, and, and uh, drug addiction is another one they point to, toward the, the incidence of opioid addiction and the, and the like, so uh, just to accentuate the point. But in terms of uh, funding uh, those needed services, um, part of the reason they also may be short-funded is because of all the log-rolling in this uh, $2 trillion bill that uh, uh, will be moving to the president's desk, uh, $25 million for the Kennedy Center. Uh, 75 million for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, 1.2 billion requiring airlines to purchase renewable jet fuel, uh, 500 million to the Institute of Museum and Library Services, and so on and so forth. You know this; you've been on the Hill. But um, but but it is un- unnerving to see people try to uh, prosecute their uh, erstwhile political agendas in this time of crisis. As you're trying to to focus really on the small businesses and the families keeping doors open and people employed.
2: Yeah, I mean, you you remember in 2009, White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel said, never let a crisis go to waste, right before they stuffed the Obama stimulus bill full of pork. In this instance, you had Jim Clyburn from South Carolina who went on the record saying, this is a chance for us to remake the economy in our vision. Uh, The House bill was released by by Nancy Pelosi, which frankly was an unserious joke. I mean, you had Green New Deal in there. uh, You had pushes for higher minimum wage. Permanent unionization reforms—you know th- these are reforms that that lawmakers know they can't—they don't have the votes to enact them in normal times. So they essentially try to hold this legislation for ransom and say, "Well, if you all want to if you all want to get that medicine you need or, or, or yeah. uh, get those unemployment benefits you need, you better give us what we want." You know, I thought McConnell did a decent job trying to keep a lot of it out of the bill. But unfortunately, the the examples you mentioned got in, and sadly, this is politics in 2020.
3: He is Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, former chief economist to Ohio Senator Rob Portman, staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. Again, catch his work at City Journal as well, city-journal.org. Brian Riedel, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and as we've been doing for the last couple of weeks, trying to uh, leaven these times with uh, some levity and some inspiration. This will be in the levity category. This uh, this impersonation of Trump by this New Jersey comedian. That has gone viral. You may have seen it already. Millions of views. Uh, the funny thing about J.L. JL Calvin, one, he's a Hillary Clinton voter, but doesn't even matter. The impersonation is that good, as you're about to hear. Born and raised in the Bronx, lived in Manhattan until about seven months ago. Uh, he said he actually voted Trump, actually voted at the same polling place as he did until he moved, um, although he said he had never met Trump. He's a 40-year-old comedian, as I said, New Jersey-based comedian. And he writes, uh, it's crazy. 16 years as a stand-up, and all it took was a global pandemic for me to finally break through. And when you hear his impersonation, both the quality of the actual impersonation as well as the the write-up he used for the impersonation, you can understand why it's gone viral.
11: 250 years ago, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ— Whose full name? You know, he was, he was Jewish, so his full name might have been like Christowitz. But God rose him from the dead on a holiday we now call Easter. Not a lot of people know that, but it's it's called Easter. <laughs> people know it's that it's when Jesus and the two Corinthians met question. the Easter Bunny and came back from the dead. <laughs> so, you know, it's a beautiful story, very important for the Christians. Like. Me. And I have decided, I'm announcing today, we are going to bring back the economy on Easter Sunday. Because God, who, to be honest, is, you know, he's a good God. He's done some some <laughs> strong things. Some, Let's be honest. His record is, like, not so great, though. Uh, he brought one guy back on Easter Sunday. And it was his son, so it was kind of like, Biased, but (laughs) we're going to bring back the entire economy on Easter Sunday. Mm. And at that point, I think basically I'm better than God. So when we do it, we're going to do it toughly. We're going to do it with great compassion, great strength, tremendous strength, and also toughness. Easter Sunday, we're going to put it on pay per view. Sure, pay per view. God versus Trump. Who brings back more people? On Easter Sunday, we're doing it. I'm going to fire Fauci probably on Good Friday and call it Great Friday for Trump. (laughs) And that's it. So let's do it. Let's get (laughs) (laughs) perfect health. Let's get back to work. Jesus Christ, not as good as Trump.
3: Speaking of entertaining things to watch online while you're uh, sequestered, no safe spaces. This uh, great documentary, number one political documentary of 2019, featuring our friend Dennis Prager, as well as Adam Carolla, is available for a limited time at NoSafeSpaces.com. NoSafeSpaces.com. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Good things, silver linings that could come out of this uh, pandemic that we're dealing with. There are some that we've we've talked about some, at least in passing things, for example, how we will do pre-K through post-secondary education in a post-COVID-19 world with the experience of distance learning. uh, Do we need this expense to uh, get a a post-secondary degree, for example? Mm. John Stossel, our friend uh, John Stossel, famed investigative reporter, uh, he put together a new video that was posted over at Reason.com on another potential positive from this which is uh, his addressing all these topics in the, the medical supplies supply chain, as well as uh, the uh, effort to get antivirals and vaccines to market. All these regulations that are being relaxed, if they're good in crisis times, why wouldn't they be good in non-crisis times as well? Stossel runs through a couple of important examples.
10: The machines, hundreds of these machines, are currently in the United States, uh, but they're not allowed to be to, to test for the virus. Not for
12: coronavirus
0: because yet. Because you need FDA approval. Yep.
10: Last month, the government finally said it would relax its rules. Instead of the months or year-long wait, there would be an expedited approval process. But even that took so long that few independent tests were approved.
9: We had some very old and obsolete rules that we. had to live with. Finally,
10: last week, the president said, just do it. Ask us for permission later.
9: Normally, it's like years and years and years. The FDA announced emergency use authorization of a new
10: on-site test. Now tests are being made, but that delay has killed people. Other rules prevent doctors from innovating, like trying out new, maybe more efficient ways to evaluate patients, like... Telemedicine.
4: Being able to care for
1: people at home with video visits and with remote monitoring.
10: That might violate patient privacy, said the government. Only last week did officials finally say they'd allow enforcement discretion. Finally, patients can consult doctors without risking getting infections in crowded waiting rooms. Telemedicine should have been legalized years ago. And now the pandemic raises a new problem. There's just only so many people that can provide care, only so many beds that exist. Yet federal rules actually limit the number of beds allowed in some hospitals. Only last week did the president change that.
13: The White House is easing some federal regulations to make more hospital beds available.
10: And if there aren't enough doctors in your state.
7: We have a shortage of doctors and nurses
4: in South Florida.
10: It's illegal for a nurse or doctor to come from another state to help. That violates a tangled web of state licensing rules. The president said he would
9: waive certain federal license requirements so that doctors from other states can provide services in states with the greatest need. But it turns
10: out he doesn't have the power to override state laws. Now at least some states have announced they will allow out-of-state licensed physicians in good standing to practice in Massachusetts. Good. But the time it took to get rid of these rules allowed the virus to spread farther. After coronavirus passes, We should
3: leave those rules waived, those and many, many others. Regulations are always presented as uh, being in the interest of the public health to save lives. What about the regulations that cost lives, as Stossel just recounted? Think about those four categories. Processing tests, telehealth, beds at hospitals, and all the talk about capacity of the infrastructure at present, and doctors and nurses, mobility of doctors and nurses to be utilized to have that that expertise utilized wherever it is most needed, particularly in crisis. And that's at the state level, as Stossel made point. There's something else, too, that perhaps could come out of this. And that is uh, agencies being more resistant to allowing mission creep to occur. And our friend John Solomon has an excellent piece on a good example of mission creep. John Solomon, award winning investigative journalist in his own right, founder of Just the News, Just dot com is the site, John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So let's talk about Mission Creep and the National Institute of Health.
12: Yeah, listen, this is our premier research agency. This is where we get our medical research done, where we solve cancer, where we address AIDS. But it also has a long history of wasteful spending, so much so that back in 2016, one of the most prestigious infectious disease specialists in the world, a guy from Harvard came in and said, you know what? I took a look at our research, and 87.5% of our research looks to be wasteful. Why is it? Half the studies we fund actually don't write a report. <clears throat> the ones that do, half have, have scientific flaws that make the findings completely spurious, and of the remaining 25%, uh, they're often duplicate in the stories we've, uh, studies were already done. What are we doing? We're wasting money, and we're putting life at jeopardy. We look back now, and what did we find out about NIH? NIH knew since 2003, that there were certain medicines that might work against the coronavirus outbreak, but they never took the time to test them, get them to clinical trial, get ready for the next contagion, the next pandemic. What did they do in those 17 years? Well, they gave us studies about drunken monkeys and what's it like to fly drunk. And could you stop kids from drinking uh, at tailgate parties by sending them a text message? If you gambled and drank, did you lose more money? Things that really don't bring a lot of value uh, to medical research and would be set or belay- delayed our ability to find solutions for the coronavirus.
3: Just uh, just a follow-up. So uh, let's put COVID-19 aside now that uh, uh, we've been made aware of this uh, research on drunken monkeys. So please uh, detail (laughs) what we found that we can apply to our everyday lives. Yes.
12: Yes, it turns out if you drink a lot, you become an alcoholic and your tissue degrades. I think we've known that. Is that right? Here's another
3: study. Just this
12: week. Yeah. Well, here's another one. The NIH, in the middle of this contagion, in the middle of this pandemic, put out a study on Tuesday saying, if you walk more, you'll be healthy. Now, how many of us have known that for wow. years? Why do we all get. Yep. And you know what? They did the same study a year ago. Why are we spending money on these sort of things? That's the question taxpayers are going to have to ask as we go forward. And late last night, after my story came out, Senator Ron Johnson, who oversees one of the most important committees in Congress, Senate Governmental Affairs, it's the investigative committee of the Senate, said, you know what? Once we get past this coronavirus, I'm digging into these issues. This is outrageous.
3: Uh, I'm not uh, cheap shotting the Obama administration for not taking the recommendation of the H1N1 task force to replenish the N95 masks. It didn't happen. And and all the experts at CDC didn't bang the drum loudly enough to have those replenished or to think about how we do testing and the possibility of a pandemic and to build out that infrastructure over the last 15 years. They didn't do it. They didn't They didn't have the foresight. But but that doesn't uh, stop anybody on the left from cheap shotting President Trump, who's been here for three years from everything that we didn't do for generations that he's supposed to do in three weeks.
12: Listen, I think the truth of the matter is every one of us in every one of our professions have some culpability in this lack of planning. We knew the movie Contagion. We knew all these things, right? We, as everyday Americans, weren't psychologically prepared for this. The hospitals weren't stockpiled for the sort of pandemic they were told to prepare for. Uh, the NIH wasn't testing the right things and wasting a lot of money. Congress wasn't providing oversight, whether it were Democrat or Republican I think when we all and one of the great things about America, when we do it right, we all take our culpability and we all pitch in and we try to get it right. And I think while the politics and the media are still toxic in in Washington, you look around the country and you see what people are doing. They're turning their factories around to produce masks in, in real time, create hand sanitizer, do things that will make a difference. We should focus on what we can make a difference now, and then later we should all own up that we failed together and fix it for the next thing. That's the best thing America could do. All the political uh, shots aside are just a waste of time in this pandemic.
3: Here's something, you know, we have to also understand why we didn't do the things we were warned to do. And uh, there was a a really good piece in The Dispatch by uh, Paul Miller, who's a professor of practice at uh, Georgetown University. Right, very Uh, smart man. And he he, he talks about um, the uh, National Intelligence Council, Warning back in 2004 that a, a virus could uh, put a halt of a, a pandemic could could happen that would put a halt to global trade and travel during an extended period of time, prompting governments to expend enormous resources on overwhelmed health, health sectors. Sound familiar? Uh, the uh, <laughs> prophetic, yeah, it was very prophetic, and and he goes into some detail about it, and and I spoke with Michael Lynn from University of Texas on this, and so, you know, so the Washington Post reported on it as early, as lately as of January and February of this year, and there's been reports on this report for 15 years. Why didn't we do anything? Because it's sort of what you're saying, there's no incentive to go out and spend a significant amount of money on building infrastructure for something that people can't see or can't conceive of and doesn't happen year after year after year. It becomes more and more difficult to justify with all of the exigencies of everyday real life that we can see, and so it gets you know put down the list of priorities. And maybe one of the lessons is, you know, take some of the the deep research by people who know something to heart and think about some long term planning and underwriting the infrastructure that's needed to prepare long term for for threats like pandemics, Um, even though it's going to be difficult to sell on a rolling basis to the American public. Now we have actually a frame of reference to say this is why it's so important. He is John Solomon, award winning investigative journalist. Founder of Just the News, justthenews.com, and I'll post his piece at Dan Proft uh, about the NIH for your perusal. John, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Be safe and be healthy. You too.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. and uh, It's sort of dreary to have to do this, but you've got to juxtapose left versus right here in terms of the responses. Because at some point, the American public is going to make a decision about the leadership of their country. That point will be November 3rd, actually. The media and their chosen leadership versus uh, what President Trump and the Coronavirus Task Force, with the experts from a range of disciplines, are saying and doing in this moment. I mean, for the many commentators, myself included, who said, you know, crisis brings out your character, it's a good time at this point when some big, big decisions are in the not-too-distant offing about uh, the balancing between our public health and our economic health, the two inextricably linked. Who has demonstrated what in these times of crisis? Let's start today with Haley Stevens. She is a freshman Democrat from Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, in the House— during floor debate on the $2 trillion disaster relief package, donning her pink gloves. No, not a pea hat, at least not in this venue. Listen to this.
13: We beam for our manufacturers who have no, I, re, I request 30 more seconds and because I rise before you adorning the these- The gentleman like from Maryland for, is recognized. Not for personal attention, not for I, personal attention, but to I, encourage I, you I, to take- Gentlemen, say, to say I'm going to give I'm going to give you more time. Right to the,
14: the Gentle kids. lady will suspend. The gentleman from Maryland is recognized.
7: The, the gentlelady is out of order. I yield the gentlelady 30 additional seconds. The gentlewoman is recognized for an additional 30 seconds.
13: cause of their servitude, sharing in the profession with those who have not come before you. Similar times of trying medical need, wars and flus pass. You will see darkness, you will be pushed. And our society needs you to stand together at this time. Our country loves you. To our doctors and our nurses, I wear these the gentle ladies. The
14: gentlelady's time has expired. The gentleman from Maryland is reco- reserved. The gentleman from Texas is recognized. The gentleman
7: from Texas is now recognized.
3: <sighs> these are our betters. The gentle
7: lady from Michigan is out of order.
3: Uh, She's not just out of order. She's out of her freaking gourd.
14: The gentlelady from Michigan is no longer recognized. The gentlelady from Michigan is no longer recognized.
3: The The gentlelady from Michigan is no longer recognized, but should be tranquilized. Seriously? That is a member of Congress you just heard. That's the steady hand you want on the rudder, is it? And then there's the substance of some of the arguments advanced, like from Andrew Cuomo Again today at his Friday briefing, talking about from his perspective, why New York City has been the hardest hit by the hardest hit by the COVID-19 outbreak.
11: New York is still by far the most affected state, both in terms of number of cases and in terms of number of deaths. Why? Because we welcome people here from all over the globe. So travelers came here. People from China came here. People from Korea came here. Uh People who were traveling around the country and stopped in China and stopped in South Korea and stopped in Italy came here. And because we are a very dense environment, you know, social distancing, uh, we're so dense, we're so together, which is what makes us special, gives us that New York energy, gives us that New York mojo. Uh, it also, that density, becomes the enemy in a situation like this.
3: The whole we're welcoming rap is really, really tiresome, like um, the rest of the country is not uh, as welcoming as New York City or New York State. Uh, we, big cities, Chicago and L.A., have uh, Asian people, Andrew Cuomo and people from all over the world and people who travel from all over the world to visit these cities as well. It hardly uh, distinguishes New York City, I'm sorry, even yeah, maybe by volume. But uh, the, the density issue is a different issue. What about the foresight as uh, the D.C. press corps, the uh, Beltway types who are looking for a viable nominee since Joe Biden isn't? What about the foresight that Andrew Cuomo is supposedly the steady hand and President Trump wasn't? What did he say less than three weeks ago? as we played earlier in the show. But let me remind you, when the New York City Public Health Commissioner, Dr. Barbeau, said this about COVID-19. This is three weeks ago. And by the way, that's six weeks after President Trump was being criticized from these same quarters for closing the border to travelers from China per the outbreak there.
13: Our preparedness as
10: a city is very high. There is no reason not to take the subway, not to take the bus, not to go out to your favorite restaurant and certainly not to miss the parade next Sunday. I'm going to be there.
3: And again, I'm not uh, cheap shotting Dr. Barbeau. It was difficult to know uh, what was uh, bubbling below the surface. But if the similar if, if, if similar restraint could be exercised in the direction of President Trump and his team, that would be nice. Of course, it won't be. There's commercials up. Super PACs for Biden or whoever their nominee is going to be. But right now it's Biden. Listen to some of these, a couple of these spots. Here's one super PAC ad aimed at Trump. Crisis comes to
1: every presidency. We don't blame them for that. What matters is how they handle it. Donald Trump didn't create the coronavirus, but he is the one who called hoax. Who eliminated the pandemic response team and who let the virus spread unchecked across America? Crisis comes to every president. This one failed. Unite the country is responsible for the content of this advertising.
3: Irresponsible is what they are. Uh, not a single thing there is true. He never said hoax in terms of the virus. He said the media trying to pin it on him was, you know, their latest. Effort to ascribe responsibility to him for something that uh, he's not you know, sort of individually responsible for, the way that it's being presented. Uh, the uh, the idea that that pandemic office within the National Security Council was eliminated was is wrong. Tim Morrison wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about it. They know it's a lie. They don't care. Where are the fact checkers? Huh? You got a fact checker handy? Wolf Blitzer? You got a fact fact checker like David Dale? Your CNN fact-checker? Daniel Dale is still with us. Daniel Dale, I mean. Our fact-checker. What else jumped out at you, Daniel?
5: One of the things, Wolf, was how much like his campaign rally rhetoric, Trump's rhetoric at this briefing was, like his rhetoric at previous briefings. We heard heard him use the phrase, big, beautiful wall. We heard him complain of, quote-unquote, abuse by members of NATO, single out the trade practices of the European Union. And so I think, you know, while there is some important health and medical information uh, being presented at these briefings, especially by people like Dr. Fauci. There's also uh, Trump using this as a political platform to promote the messages that he is not able to promote at rallies because he can't hold rallies
3: right now. Uh huh. That's the, that's your fact checker. Oh, Dr. Fauci. You mean this Dr. Fauci? We've never had a threat like this and the coordinated
8: response has been Uh, There are a number of adjectives to re-describe it. Impressive, I think, is one of them.
3: There's Dr. Fauci, Daniel Dale, CNN fact checker. I'll tell you what, uh, take some time off this weekend from this nonsense, which I have to do because they pay me. Nosafespaces.com for limited time only. The Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla hit political documentary, number one political documentary of 2019, is available to watch in the comfort of your own home. Check out No Safe Spaces this weekend when you have some time. NoSafespaces.com. Don't stop me,
5: don't stop me, don't stop me. Hey, hey, hey. Don't stop me, don't stop me. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Like don't stop it. me, don't stop me. Hey. Have a good time, good time.
0: Don't stop me, don't stop me. You're listening to The Dan Croft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, President Trump will continue to get pressed at his uh, task force briefings about the Defense Production Act. As we talked about yesterday, governors like Jay Inslee in particular, apparently Washington State governor, calling on him to use the Defense Production Act to force resources out of particular sectors in this country. Uh, this continues on from Bill de Blasio in New York City, calling for President Trump to start nationalizing private businesses weeks ago. So it continues to be top of mind for the left and the press corps. And I repeat myself, And President Trump's response to the most recent call on Thursday evening during his briefing was this.
9: Defense Production Act uh, is a wonderful thing, but I just haven't had to use it. They know it's activated. They know I can use it. Maybe that frightens them a little bit. You know, it's got tremendous power. But I haven't had to.
3: We'll start there with Mark Perry, a professor of economics and finance at the University of Michigan and Carpe Diem blogger for the American Enterprise Institute. Often reference uh, Carpe Diem's work, uh, Carpe Diem's postings and uh, by extension, Mark Perry's work on this show. So you definitely want to check that out. Mark, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah. Hi,
14: Dan. Yeah. Happy to be on again.
3: Well, this sort of dovetails into something that you've been talking about for many moons and uh, had a recent post on as well, which is that the price gouging, the effort to interdict so-called price gouging. The first piece of it, it's interesting to the zeitgeist from particular quarters to uh, formally seize the property, private property of business owners or to uh, essentially seize control and direct the production of those facilities, particularly when. It's uh, apparently not needed, according to President Trump. And boy, it's nice to see any politician exercise some restraint with respect to the power they have by statute.
14: Yeah, sure. I mean, and that's the danger in a crisis like this. It kind of ramps up government power or the call for government power. And I think that's one of the dangers of this is that Ocasio-Cortez, Carla Marx is calling for what the nationalization of all the hospitals (laughs)
2: And
11: so,
14: so, I mean, I think that's one of the dangers of a crisis like this is that it puts us maybe on the road to serfdom, where, you know, the government then uses this as an excuse to get power over the people. And so I think that's one of the things we have to be concerned about. There's been reports lately that Sweden has reacted much differently than this, and they haven't had any lockdowns and quarantines and so on, and they're just kind of going on with business as usual. So I think a, a model Bernie likes to look at. Uh, Bolshevik Bernie likes to look at Sweden as an example. And I think this is one case where not to look at their socialism, but to look at response to this. And so well, know, maybe people
3: should. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to know. So it's, uh, the, the, you know, Bill de Blasio calling for the federal government to seize people's private property, their businesses. That uh, is unremarkable, at least to those on MSNBC who are interviewing him. But but also to, to many quarters, it's unremarkable. It's just, as no, a matter of fact, But uh, some kid in Tennessee that uh, drives around uh, picking up hand sanitizer at the local superstores and local stores and then tries to sell them on eBay and Amazon, he's public enemy number one.
14: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, also, again, this happens every emergency or after every natural disaster that, of course, you know, there's an increase in demand and a shortage of supply. So, of course, just the laws of economics dictate that prices have to go up at least temporarily until the situation is resolved. Um, but then these uh, politicians and bureaucrats and attorneys general who think that they can somehow perform economic miracles by forcing a price that is really too low according to the market conditions, and then they're enforcing price gouging laws all over the country and finding small businesses. And I think what makes this difference is usually after a natural disaster like a hurricane or a flood or an earthquake, or a tornado, that there is a true shortage of supply, at least temporarily, because the whole area has been devastated, and so the, the supply has been destroyed. In this case, there was no supply shortage. It was really just caused by excessive buying and panic buying and hoarding by the greedy consumers. You know, So we always blame the greedy businesses, but I think we should look at our greedy fellow consumers who got to the stores first Bought up all of the toilet paper, or hand sanitizer, or face masks, or cleaning supplies, cleared out the shelves. And so then, when the next group of people came, then we found empty shelves. So it was really the panic buying that caused the, the shortages and empty shelves. And then, enforcing price gouging laws isn't going to do anything to that behavior. And so it's kind of exercising that you, t- you somehow think that you can impose anti price gouging laws, and that that'll somehow make the shelves all of a sudden become full again. And it just doesn't work that way. So it's just, again, it defies common sense and basic economic logic. And yet they do this every time, time after time, after every emergency or natural disaster. And we're seeing that play out all over the country again, uh, which kind of makes economists and people who think logically kind of go crazy a little bit looking at that. Price
3: gouging uh, when um, we, enforcement. When we come back with uh, Mark Perry, I want to talk a little bit more about the price gouging, whether it's even a thing, and and how do you determine the price at which you're being or someone is gouging you? Uh, more with uh, Mark Perry, professor of economics and finance, University of Michigan, Carpe Diem blogger for the American Enterprise Institute. Right after this.
13: Gotta hold on
0: fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Proff Show.
3: We're back with Mark Perry, professor of economics and finance University of Michigan, Carpe Diem blogger for the American Enterprise Institute, talking about uh, price gouging and the uh, you know, I wasn't one of those people who uh, went out and uh, bought a year supply of toilet paper, Mark, and fighting in the aisles uh, over it. Um, by the way, Costco, for those who did and now realize that uh, toilet paper um, is not going to go away, uh, all, sale, all toilet paper sales are final to Costco. So you, you're going to have to figure out a different way to arbitrage it than just returning it. But um, when I went to my local Walgreens Yeah, I got a toothbrush and uh, the toilet paper was behind the counter like it was pornography or something. And um, I could only buy one uh, package of four rolls and it was like two X what it normally is. So was I gouged or or how do how does the government determine what the magic price is, what the magic multiple is to say you're gouging me versus somebody else is just trying to conserve by trying to find a market clearing price?
14: Yeah, well, that's one of the problems. The the beauty of a market price is that it is the price that brings a voluntary buyer and seller together to complete the transaction. Now, if you're going to interfere with those voluntary transactions and say, well, that some places are price gouging, and then that triggers the price gouging laws and fines and penalties, but then who decides, yeah, what price becomes price gouging? compared to just a high price during an emergency when demand is high and supplies are, are, are low. So, yeah, I mean, the states usually come up with some formula, but it's always just arbitrary and not based on any kind of economic logic that, what, a 10 or 20% price increase would trigger price gouging. So there's really no, you know, logic in it. And then so that's one problem, who determines what price gouging is. And then the other problem is then you have to waste all of these um, activities sources of law enforcement to go out and prosecute people and respond to complaints. And then often what happens is it's, it's really small businesses that are the ones that get fined and, and targeted with these price gouging complaints. It's usually not, you know, Walmart and Target. So that's another problem is, first of all, yeah, who decides what price gouging is? How How do we justify spending all of these resources and then what if it's a small business that gets accused of it and they get fined and penalized, and then maybe that puts them out of business? And so, again, it's a, kind of usually an attack on small businesses more than big businesses. So lots of problems with place gouging laws.
3: Yeah, to, to your point, uh, Jeff Mordock writing in Washington Times about this liquor store in Fresno, California, fined $10,000 for jacking up the price of bottled water. Uh, the store was selling a 24-pack of bottled water for 16 bucks. I mean, that's not even a dollar a bottle. Obviously, um, it, it, it normally retails between four to five dollars. So they three X the price. OK, officials in Jersey City issued nine fines selling 90 grand, 90 grand to one discount store. They said initiated the uh, inflated the price of a rubbing alcohol and disinfectant wipes. Um, New York City's issued more than 275 grand in fines for alleged price gouging. Um, so, yeah, t- t- I mean, to your point, uh, just as we're keep doors open, keep people on the uh, on the payroll, keep people employed so we don't go into a depression. And here you have uh, enforcement action, Republicans and Democrats. I mean, Attorney General Barr talked about price gouging at one of the briefings this week and how DOJ was going to be aggressive in prosecuting price gouging as well. I mean, it's um, it's uh, you know, sort of really um, um, shooting, shooting yourself in the foot.
14: Yeah, and it's not an option. The choice isn't between low prices with lots of availability and high prices with lots of availability. The the choices are low prices, full availability, and high prices with some availability. And, of course, the higher prices then discourage this overconsumption and buying, where some people, yeah, they have a year's supply of toilet paper in their garage now, and then other people don't have any. So, you know, that's, uh, again, the trade-off. It's not really a a legitimate trade-off between low prices and high prices with availability. The choices between high prices that discourage consumption and then create some availability for other people versus low prices, artificially low prices, and empty shelves, and so that doesn't serve anybody well either, because then people are driving around, wasting resources, going from store to store, trying to find the, the eggs or the toilet paper, whatever it is whatever they need. So and lots it, of yeah. inefficiencies.
3: And it's just another case where, so, so, um, I'm going to uh, set the price that clears the shelves. And then I'm, and then and then we're going to say that that's a market failure that uh, we people don't have the supplies they need. So now the government needs to step in and start seizing businesses to force people to produce whatever they think the amount of any product should be. I mean, it's just sort of this never-ending chain, which is where the Karla Marxes of the world want us to go, right? Which is just you know have the government run all of these businesses. You know, have the Illuminati and government who know just exactly how many ventilators we need and how much hand sanitizer we need and stuff. Just seize these businesses and produce based on you know their whimsy
14: sure and that's what i mentioned before about the danger of of emergencies like this giving government more power than they really deserve because if people now put their faith in government to go out and figure out what the right price is in charge of businesses then it's just you know it's it's giving government more power than they really deserve and if people really buy into this then it's just a way for the government to to, to some price controls gouging and a yeah, and government intervention, and I think it's justified.
3: And 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 and, and, the, and the the kid that got uh, so much attention for uh, trying to arbitrage hand sanitizer. I mean, did he do anything morally wrong? Uh, it, it's it's morally wrong for him to do that, but it's, but but there's no problem with uh, you know, Amazon cornering the markets on so many different supplies and setting prices as they see fit. And of course, Amazon and eBay threw him off their sites once they got wind of it because it it looks bad or it generates an outcry. But what is he doing any different than Amazon is doing?
14: Oh, sure, right. And he had the, he took the initiative. I mean, he was entrepreneurial and went out and took the time and money and used resources to go out and buy up. He anticipated might have been an item that might be in high demand soon. And so, yeah, I mean, that's just the way the economy functions uh, on a day to day basis. So then to somehow criticize him for doing something wrong or immoral is really just criticizing the way the economy operates on a day to day basis, where he took a risk, went out and invested money and time and resources to buy some products. He had no idea if he'd be able to sell them or for how much. Turns out he made the right decision, I guess, and had something that people wanted and people were willing to pay his prices, I guess but then he gets shut down. and So then you have to think, well, what happens to all of that inventory? Does that just sit there? I mean, does the government confiscate it or do they use that as evidence for illegal price gouging or something? And so then that often happens is that government seizes property like they did with generators after Katrina and so then, that doesn't do anybody any good. And so again, it's just you know unnecessary government interference.
3: He is Mark Perry, professor of economics and finance at the University of Michigan, Carpe Diem blogger for the American Enterprise Institute. Mark, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care.
6: The
0: more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, holding President Trump to a non human standard, the DC Press Corps. The foresight he was supposed to have that uh, the infectious disease experts didn't have, or at least the uh, heads of the core agencies, CDC, NIH, didn't have such that they uh, beat the drum for replenishing N95 masks, the 100 million that were used during the H1N1 outbreak, which didn't happen, as we know, Uh, or uh, uh, anticipating the nature and scope of the outbreak uh, having a handle on the entirety of us healthcare infrastructure again that all the medical professionals and uh, medical professors and public health professionals and infectious disease experts didn't have or didn't beat the drum loudly enough with respect to altering it so that we had the sort of testing infrastructure for example that uh, we needed to combat this. At least Dr. Deborah Burks has been honest about it from the beginning, that the, no one anticipated that you would have a pandemic of this sort, a respiratory illness, uh, coincide with flu season. Uh, and all the way up until recently. I mean, uh, President Trump was prescient with respect to shutting off travel from China to the United States at the end of January. Thinking about the timeline of the last 60 days from the end of January to the end of March. And what has been done, given where this administration started, with respect to all of the relevant questions about infrastructure and supplies and uh, professionals and agencies. Give you another example. Dr. Bardot. Excuse me, Dr. Barbeau, Barbeau. She is the New York City Public Health Commissioner. This was what she was saying publicly, New York City, right? The epicenter of the most substantial outbreak of the virus in this country. What she was saying to New Yorkers just in advance of St. Patrick's Day a couple of weeks ago.
13: For coronavirus is low
10: and that our preparedness as a city is very high. There is no reason not to take the subway, not to take the bus, not to go out to your favorite restaurant, and certainly not to miss the parade
15: next Sunday.
1: I'm going
3: to be there. Uh, Next Sunday, so three weeks ago, a little less. And I'm not blaming her. I'm not holding her up. How could, how did she not know this was going to happen? She's responsible. But isn't that what uh, so many in the D.C. press corps and the left are attempting to do with Trump? So again, uh, no cheap shotting. Here, if only the press could restrain its cheap shotting in the direction in which we become accustomed, and try to be serious people, constructive, providing value added information, staying in their lane to do their job to the best of their ability in advance of the public interest. What a novel to borrow a word concept. This is the damn process. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was on with uh, CNBC's Jim Mad Money Kramer yesterday. And, uh, you know, Kramer's all over the board politically Uh, So it was interesting to hear him open his conversation with Mnuchin thusly.
1: You know what, Mr. Secretary, when I go through the bill... Uh, What I keep finding, and and it struck me, is is that you told us at the very beginning, this is going to be like business interruption insurance, that this is going to be about small and medium-sized business. I tried very hard to try to discredit that, and I couldn't. It's really true. There's very little about corporations. There's very much about the small and medium-sized. And you added the 1099, which I know is the new economy, the gig economy. Can you find all these people to give them the money? Because this is a very complicated task to give all these people the money because you delivered. It goes to the people, not to the companies.
10: Well, you're, Jim, you're you're right. The majority of this bill is all about small business and American workers.
3: And then he went on to reiterate what he's already said about those provisions with uh, that uh, Kramer was referencing. Uh, additionally, though, we talked a bit about uh, questions surrounding certain Congresspersons regarding stock transactions and. Whether or not uh, particularly North Carolina Senator Richard Burr, Republican, was leveraging inside information to make the decisions he made. Also, frankly, Dianne Feinstein's husband to make the decisions that he made and perhaps others. And if uh, there's not a good explanation, then they should resign and or be prosecuted as far as I'm concerned. But then there's also hedge fund managers like Bill Ackman, who's a billionaire, and uh, he helped to stoke the hysteria uh, just – uh, less than two weeks ago here was Ackman calling for a national shutdown.
6: I'm an optimist um,
14: but beginning in I don't know late January I was getting increasingly bearish and I woke up with a nightmare and my nightmare was you have this virus that replicates uh, and infects incredibly rapidly you know each person infects two and a half people each of whom infects two and a half people you know One becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes 16, 16, 256, 65,000. You get to just massive, massive numbers. And watching this thing roll out in China, it kills, you know, one to two percent of the people in China. The number's been closer to four.
3: Uh, That's not the important thing. The important thing is that he made $2.6 billion by betting against the markets just days after he said hell is coming and the rest of what you heard him say. $2.6 Two point six billion dollar one off bet that the coronavirus would cause a global market crash seizing upon bond turmoil uh, in buying credit protection on various global investment grade and high yield credit indices. It's the old smash and grab. So maybe CNBC should be a little bit more careful to inquire about positions that uh, their guests will have. Or are setting up to have before they allow them to come on? Hedge fund manager speaking as some sort of uh, epidemiologist or even statistical expert. I don't care how good he is at math. In contravention to what a lot of other modelists were suggesting, I mean, just disgraceful. And I hope there is a full reckoning for Ackman. Now, now let's get CNBC. Go, go back on CNBC for uh, more on the topic of uh, the economic health piece of the public health puzzle. We're pleased to be joined by Jeffrey Korzenek, who is a chief investment strategist and SVP for Fifth Third Bank. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. You can skip over Bill Ackman um, unless you o- want to opine on him. But uh, going back to what Jim Cramer had to say, I mean, do you agree with uh, his assessment that uh, the proposal that's been put together and is expected to be passed by the House today and put on the president's desk is really uh, focused in on, on the American worker and the American small business person?
1: We're still plowing through the details of this very, very long document, of course. Right. But uh, two things are striking. One, that there is a very large focus on small business and with the idea of supporting employment. So there's very specific tie-ins to aids and loans and forgiveness of, of uh, taxes and things like that that are tied uh, closely to uh, to employment. So I think that's, that's very healthy. What's particularly striking is just the massive size of the stimulus. Um, you know, it's close to 10% of GDP. Um, that compares to, you know, the, the New Deal, the whole, entire New Deal was 6 or 7%, percent 6 percent of GDP. Um, 08, 09 combined was 6 or 7% of GDP. So this is a big, big uh, move by the federal
3: government. And 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 um, in a piece that uh, that you penned, um, you uh, go through a number of considerations we should take under advisement as we're trying to work our way intellectually through this, and, and one is uh, have a balanced view. It's important for us to recognize the risks of succumbing to the emotionalism of leading stories each day. Just develop that from a banker's perspective. Yeah.
1: So one of the things that was really striking to us was that, you know, you learn in the markets, there's a a bullish story and a bearish story to everything. And uh, the overwhelming onslaught of news and the overwhelming onslaught of immediate investor reaction uh, was to, completely focused on the negative and not see any any bright spots or any positives and that doesn't make for good investment decisions we saw that play out in the markets. Uh, we like to say and i steal this from my friend chris verone at uh, strategic strategic research uh, bear markets have a bang and a whimper phase and the bang phase is where you have this wholesale cascade of uh, indiscriminate selling that's what we've been going through i think that's inspired uh, by this lack of that va- balance and what we are starting to transition to is where uh, the whimper phase where you have a little bit less volatility and you start to sort out What what could work here and then specifically? Um, we think that the uh, market participants have underplayed any kind of medical mitigation they've underplayed the opportunity to have a more selective recovery strategy in terms of getting more certain elements or geographies of the U.S. economy back to work. So all, all these things need to be brought more
3: bro- broadly into balance. I, you know, it's been a good uh, three days, apparently the best three days since the 30s in terms of some yes. clawback. But but um, give us a, a picture of, of what people should expect to sort of hunker down and, and, you know, take the highs with the lows over the next, well, several months at least uh, when it comes to the market. And, and also specifically, are you – uh, concerned at all about a bit of a retracement uh, back towards, you know, Dow 18 or 17?
1: Yeah, I, I'm absolutely uh, concerned about a retracement or, you know, even conceivably new lows. I, I don't think we're done with this bang stage. There's still a lot of indiscriminate selling. And, and then the last couple days, in some ways, were indiscriminate buying. Everything was going up. Uh, that's not healthy. That tells you you have not settled the market and you're still in this uh, phase of wholesale movements that that ultimately can be uh, somewhat dangerous i do think we're getting inklings that we're starting to move to a little bit more discrimination between sectors what are going to be the winners what are going to be losers uh, that's part of the next phase We go up and down during that uh, that period uh, we are hoping for lower levels of volatility uh, we are also going to be uh, uh, opening up the possibility i think that's what a lot of the last couple of days of rally was about investors finally understood it doesn't have to be shutting down the economy forever and ever. It doesn't have to be the Great Depression. There's a pathway that has trade-offs, public health trade-offs to be sure, but a pathway to uh, making this uh, shorter rather than longer episode. Either way, it's going to be a nasty episode. Uh, What the challenge will be for investors in the days ahead is the news flow. Uh, We are going to be uh, seeing a rapid rise of infections as we broaden testing, a rapid rise of hospitalizations and, and sadly tragically a rapid rise in uh, in deaths due to this. So those are the things that are, are, are not typically what market rallies are, 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 made, uh, are made out of. Mark, markets do bottom at moments of uh, greatest pessimism um, and so perhaps that's still ahead of us, but those are going to be the challenges. You know, that kind of news flow certainly doesn't make you feel good about the outlook, but Markets are forward looking. We as investors have to look beyond the today's headlines as well.
3: One of, uh, you know, one of Warren Buffett's many aphorisms is only when the tide goes out, do you discover who's been swimming naked. And I wonder yeah. if, um, you know, perhaps we're looking for silver line, silver linings here, and perhaps a silver lining post COVID-19 pandemic is a little bit of a clearing of the brush and the over leveraged in the marketplace. Yeah, I th- I think that's fair.
1: Interestingly, this, Cycle. And one of the reasons we think that a uh, decently speedy recovery is possible is this cycle, it's not the consumer. If you, if you go back to 0809, we had an over-leveraged consumer and uh, an excess of supply of, of real estate, uh, which is uh, where the leverage was as well. Uh, this cycle, we selectively have a lot of debt um, in corporations, but not at the household balance sheet uh, level, uh, at household um, income statements in particular. How, how much does it cost you as a percentage of your income to carry your debt is not particularly high. It's, it really never rebounded after uh, 08, 09. Uh, But but you will see uh, some companies that took on too much debt, sometimes as a result of a private equity transaction, um, th- those will, will have some kind of impairment in their performance and, and some you know may go out of business. That's probably a healthy warning to
3: the economy not to get over leveraged. So, so there's some long
1: term structural benefits to this.
3: He is Jeffrey Korzenek. He's the chief investment strategist and senior vice president at Fifth Third Bank. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Thank you.
0: Is the Dan Prof Show?
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, coming up, uh, and uh, after the break, we're going to talk to uh, Gilbert uh, Sewell. Get some historical perspective on a pandemic like COVID nineteen. Uh, right now, I wanted to give you some perspective on what the infantilization of the public sounds like from from its elected leaders and nowhere is this more evident nowhere is this more evident I've been riveted to Andrew Cuomo's uh, daily press briefings just as uh, most uh, just as many people have just as we have been uh, covering in great detail the uh, White House COVID task force's daily briefings. Uh, In uh, Illinois, where I live, we've got uh, two big government Democrat socialists uh, functionally in charge of the state. The governor, J.B. Pritzker, who has had his uh, rhetorical run ins with President Trump, as you've undoubtedly seen over the last week or so. And uh, the mayor of Chicago, the self-described triple threat because she's gay, black and female. That's how she described herself when she announced her candidacy. So that tells you something about the, the the level of identitarian politics in Chicago and in Illinois. Her name's Lori Lightfoot. For those of you who don't know, they both had uh, briefings on Thursday at, at which point they shut down the outdoors in Illinois. I mean, I mean that quite literally shut down the outdoors. We'll start with the mayor of Chicago. For those of you who visit beautiful city right there on the lake. Uh, and there has been a shutdown order in place that uh, the governor instituted uh, a week ago, but now Lori Lightfoot and frankly the governor, but we'll start with Lightfoot, has taken it a step further, uh, closing the lakefront to people walking or jogging, closing bike trails and parks. So even for solitary activity, effectively, this is a woman who just about seven days ago said uh, when the shutdown of the state was announced, effectively for business this is not martial law well let me tell you something she's getting a lot warmer as of yesterday and uh here's her lecturing the residents of chicago like a mother would lecture a toddler
13: we need to do this in order to hammer home the reality to all of you who still haven't gotten the message you people here in Chicago, when it comes to staying home and being responsible, most Chicagoans have been doing their part, but many have not, and you know who you are. Over the past few days, we've seen crowds of a hundred or more congregating together, particularly along our lakefront and along the 606 and other places. This is a blatant violation of Governor Pritzker's stay-at-home order. Your conduct, yours, is posing a direct threat to our public health. And without question, your continued failure to abide by these life-saving orders will erase any progress that we have made over the past week in slowing the spread of this disease. And so? That is why, effective immediately, I have ordered the closure of Chicago's lakefront from north to south and south to north, along with our 606 trail and the Riverwalk. This order is being executed through our Department of Public Health in collaboration with our parks and the Chicago Police Department.
3: Uh-huh. The 606 is a big bike trail. Uh, the Riverwalk is along sh- the riverfront, Chicago's river, the Chicago River, area, of course. Uh, She uh, went on to uh, add uh, another restriction.
13: This order also restricts any and all contact sports like basketball, soccer and football. I've seen and we've had repeated reports of people engaging in full contact sports as if this virus isn't serious. A pandemic pandemic means it's here in our midst every day and we've got to all do our part it's not for me to just do it's for you to do your part
3: Mm -hmm. and uh she won't hesitate to do more uh will this budding uh, juan Perón?
13: i won't hesitate to take any further action needed as dictated by the science and the data if we need to do more to reinforce for those of you who have failed to get the message,
3: mm-hmm. um, including uh, arresting people is what she said, uh, did not give the shoot on site order yet, but as you heard, she'll do more. And then there was a, a bit of a nice moment. Uh, her wife, Amy Eshelman, uh, mm-hmm. you know, took to uh, the uh, veranda uh, where she gave this speech uh, Uh, over the uh, body populace in Chicago and um, offered this to the residents.
13: Don't cry for me, Argentina The truth is I never left you Don't cry for me,
3: Chicago All
13: through my wild days My mad existence I kept my promise don't keep your distance
3: well, actually, do keep your distance, yeah, yeah, very peronista here in Chicago, but I mean the tone and the anger we're disappointing her uh Illinois has uh, last report a little over twenty five hundred total cases. The uh, state is so bad at uh, breaking down that data other than by ethnicity or by race actually is what it uh, what was provided at a brief year, earlier in this week, I think I mentioned on a previous show, literally telling us how many black, white, Latino people had coronavirus as if it matters, as if the, we've got to make sure, boy, it's, it's bad enough without the coronavirus being deemed a racist, right? Make sure that the, those infected are perfectly racially representative of the larger population. This is the level of identitarian politics I was trying to describe. And obviously, it's not limited to Chicago and Illinois. We just happen to be perhaps the nation's worst example. 2,500 cases, 26 deaths. It's terrible. It's unfortunate. But in point of fact, the state public health director suggested that uh, cases in Cook County, which is, of course, where Chicago is lo- uh, located, second uh, most populous county in the country behind L.A. County, uh, were uh, not increasing as rapidly, despite uh, Deborah Burks mentioning Cook County specifically by name at the White House Task Force briefing on Thursday evening. So you have the combination. It's really a, a, a interesting combination, isn't it? Being infantilized and scolded by your elected representatives while they're uh, limiting your movement, even in a solitary, socially distanced fashion. I mean, severely limiting it under threat of arrest. While they can't get their data straight to break it down for the public, uh, Lori Lightfoot is engaging in all kinds of uh, a uh, uh, worst case scenario projections about the number of hospitalizations. And she won't release the studies that she references generically that these decisions are supposedly based upon, which doesn't inspire a lot of confidence, nor should it. Uh, and then you got uh, the governor offering his version of uh, a similar lecture. To be very clear, this virus doesn't
12: care that you're bored and that you want to hang out with your friends. It doesn't care that you don't believe that it's dangerous. The virus could care less if you think that
3: I'm overreacting. You know what else the virus could care less about? The cant from hack politicians like J.B. Pritzker and Murray
0: Lightfoot. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Earlier in the week, we had uh, Harvard not being able to pay its uh, contractual dining hall workers. Well, not choosing to be able to pay its contractual dining hall workers, despite having a $41 billion endowment. Uh, now we've got this story out of uh, NYU. Uh, a uh, undergrad at NYU has uh, reported... Uh, a reaction to a student petition demanding some tuition reimbursement for the students, 60 grand a year to go to NYU, uh, this is a theater school, uh, and uh, the reaction from NYU Tisch School of Arts's Dean Allison Green, she's the school's dean, her name's Allison Green, to uh, this uh, back and forth over uh, Zoom classes and whether or not uh, that is a sufficient substitute for actual in-person instruction when you're talking about drama, right? It's a little bit different than math or literature, uh, arguably, Uh, and whether or not there should be some sort of reimbursement. She posted a two-minute and 16-second video of her, and she's a self-described choreographer, of her dancing to REM's Losing My Religion, to, in which the response from uh, one uh, undergrad who really brought this to the public's attention is basically uh, WTF. And it is just engendering that much more attention and that much more anger, including from NYU art school alums like Rachel Bloom, uh, who's an actress, Anna Dresden, who's a uh, Saturday Night Live writer complaining about uh, the tuition plus the response the bizarre i mean it is bizarre the response uh the the state of higher ed we've talked about this uh, a couple of times now and perhaps it bears a little revisiting with the harvard story and now the nyu one about what higher ed may look like in a post covid 19 world for more on this topic and a couple of others we're pleased to be joined by Gil seawall he is a contributor to the american conservative director of the american textbook council co-author of after hiroshima the united states since 1945 and editor of the 80s a reader gail thanks for joining us appreciate it nice to be here you know based on the quality of the response and the legitimacy its viewed with which it's viewed by the undergrads and their families what college uh, well, education may look to, like I, after look, this i
11: can't
15: speak
3: to the uh actual logistics on campus
15: in the future right uh that's going to be complicated uh, but I think a lot of the uh, silly and pernicious humanities uh, programs identity politics programs um, are going to fold. I don't think there's going to be any student demand. Uh, maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, uh, but I think um, Uh, Student demand uh, for coursework is going to change. Okay? That's my prediction. Yeah. Uh, And I have no crystal ball. I'm a historian. I look at the past. uh, I don't look, I don't have any magical, uh,
3: no, I understand.
15: Uh, Insight into the future.
3: I understand. But it is interesting. It's interesting to think about, too. I mean, it is, uh, you know, as, with the price point and possibly the experience of a lot of students' distance learning that maybe uh, don't want to pay sort of the exponential premium for the campus life. I mean, I, you know, you, you, you sort of think about some of these identity politics uh, areas of study, and and maybe they're really sort of propped up by the the – the nature of what a campus is like with all the students there that would be different if there were at least a significant portion of the students that were distance learning
15: mm, i'm not sure of that uh, uh, distance learning uh i have some experience with it uh, mm-hmm. because of my background with te- textbooks but uh, uh it works in some fields it doesn't work in others uh but what i'm talking about is something else and that is uh, student demand for knowledge, uh, and uh, I think that 's going to change abruptly
3: and 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 what what's your intuition there what 's your sense of it why what, you know why do you have that sense
15: why uh because I think um, uh, current events are going to force people uh to be more realistic young mm. people about uh, uh, what uh, works what is fantasy. Uh, what is affordable, what is not, Uh, 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 how to uh, make a living. Uh, Look, we could have a 30% unemployment rate in the next few months. Mm -hmm. Uh, Think about how you'd feel if you were 30 years old.
6: Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's an interesting insight. I mean, it's 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 certainly a, um, uh, there's a there's merit to that perspective, no question. Uh, when we come back with uh, Gil Sewell, contributor to the American Conservative, director of the American Textbook Council, co-author of After Hiroshima, the United States since forty-five, and editor of the Eighties: A Reader, we'll talk a little bit uh, more about uh, historical context in. Appreciating what we're going through with the COVID 19 pandemic. More with Gil Sewell right after this.
11: You say you a real you know.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof., and this is The Dan Prof. Show.
3: We're back with Gil Sewall. He's a contributor to the American Conservative, director of the American Textbook Council, co-author of After Hiroshima, the United States Since 1945, and editor of the 80s, a reader. And, uh, Gil, you uh, wrote a piece for uh, the American Conservative, AmericanConservative.com, about the, the plague. You took us back to the 14th century and tried to provide a little bit of historical perspective on uh, a pandemic like this and the infliction of human misery.
15: Right. Well, one of my points was to reassure people. I'm seeing around me a great deal of fear, some panic, a good deal of drama. All of that's very natural during a medical, biomedical crisis like this. Uh, But this is nothing, really nothing compared to the plagues of the past, in which uh, whole countries were depopulated, uh, cities uh, turned into ghost towns, all of that. I want to reassure people uh, in uh, Chicago and everywhere that this will pass, uh, that this is a medical crisis, but the degree of overreaction, uh, the psychological impact of all of this uh, worries me.
3: And we've talked a a good bit about this on the show, too, just again, trying to add historical context. This isn't the first pandemic we've been through even recently. But so it's the pandemic isn't unprecedented per se, but the reaction certainly is uh, as you compare it to the 1957 uh, flu pandemic or even the uh, H1N1 from 11 years ago, and I wonder. There,
15: what uh, Yeah, there are many, uh, there are many yeah. historic uh, yeah. cases. Yeah, you've... I wrote about the Black Death, right, a uh, four-year bubonic and pneumonic plague that ravaged the world, and it left the European continent entirely changed. Uh, since, uh, depending on the region, uh, one quarter to one half of the population died. Uh, some people are acting as though that's uh, going to be happening in the United States and worldwide uh, in the next few weeks. And it's not
3: right. And and but but my 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 point was uh, for other pandemics that a lot of people have lived through 2009 or even uh, even a lot of people still living have lived through older people, the 57 uh, influenza uh, pandemic. Uh, the reaction in 2020 is a lot different. And, and I just get a historical perspective on the reaction, not just the. Uh, how would you carnage. describe
15: the uh, current reaction? How would you describe it?
3: I, I would describe it as largely unhinged.
15: Unhinged, yes. yes. Uh, I'm seeing that, and that, uh, that kind of instability and overreaction is worrisome, particularly uh, if you uh, look at the current pandemic. Through a historical lens, uh, right. whether it's the plague of the 14th century or the plague, uh, Daniel Defoe's plague of the 17th century in London. I think people should um, uh, buck up a bit uh, and uh, stop, in some cases, uh, uh, dramatizing uh, uh, their situation.
3: Do you you have the sense that uh, part of the reaction, um, the unprecedented reaction, is a function of the politicization of our times, that In previous pandemics, we were more likely to be more quickly unified as a country. And here, yet even weeks into this, we still have a lot of cheap shotting going in both directions politically. Mm, No,
11: I
15: can't even go there. I'm not sure about that. It's not that I'm avoiding your question. I just uh, haven't really worked that out in my own mind.
3: Let me me put it – let me try it a different way. Do you think that we're, as as this generation or or younger generation, say uh, Gen X down – do you think we're as steeped in American history or world history as previous generations were so that we bring this sort of historical context to the table?
15: Oh, I see it rather differently. I think a lot of people highly self-absorbed, what we call narcissistic, and uh, they are uh, looking at uh, this issue uh, uh, not as uh, something uh, that... Uh, Uh, we're experiencing as a society, what they are experiencing themselves, pure and simple. Now, of course, uh, uh, we don't have the commonwealth. We don't have the uh, 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 cohesion as a society. We did a generation ago. That's on account of multiculturalism and a lot of other social phenomena. And so there's going to be a more suspicion and distrust, but it's not a partisan thing, okay. Let's get away from the partisan uh where a lot of people tend to go reflexively
3: okay uh, not partisan politicization of everything at politics being infused into every corner of our life from whichever direction
15: uh well, what i I can only uh speak to what I see. And uh, uh, what I wrote about, among other things, many other things, uh, uh, in the historical, is uh, uh, the Trump hate uh, that surfaces uh, uh, mm-hmm. repeatedly. Uh, and uh, that is, as I said, and I couldn't, uh, I can't stress it enough, uh, uh, not useful and it's inappropriate. And it might bite, backfire politically. I don't know.
3: You know what's what's interesting is Gallup just came out with some survey data, uh, American public opinion approval ratings of the various individuals and enterprises that are riding point on this. Of course, uh, U.S. hospitals at the top list eighty-eight percent of Americans approve your children's school, eighty-three percent your state government, eighty-two your employer, eighty-two. You know, there's the there is this uh, common sense, realistic uh, coming together of people, which is appropriate and productive. Even Pence and Trump are above sixty the news media at 44 by far the lowest rating well, I, I wonder uh, i wonder okay, how much I, that, yeah
15: uh um, i mean uh, uh congress and uh the media always polls
3: congress is at bottom. 59 congress is at 59 the media is at 44
15: uh well uh, uh look uh my, the media is uh uh not helping uh, the situation of uh, of as far as i can uh discern uh, uh-huh. Uh, the uh, 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 it's uh, <clears throat> uh, agitating people, uh, stirring up uh, fear of uh, some of the uh, statistics uh, that are running across people's heads uh, are uh, frightening, terrifying, uh, but they're not exactly true. Hmm. Uh, and uh, but uh, the media has been. Uh, corrupted uh, politically for a long time. Uh, I wrote uh, for Newsweek and Fortune magazine long ago when uh, uh, there were efforts at objectivity and staying away from propaganda. Uh, that's all disappeared in mainstream media today.
3: He is Gilbert, uh, Gilbert C. Wall, who is a contributor to the American Conservative. Uh, director of the American Textbook Council, co-author of After Hiroshima, the United States Since 45, and editor of the 80s, a reader. Gilbert Sewell, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof okay. Show. Appreciate uh, it's it. It's a pleasure. Take it's care. A
11: pleasure.
10: The more you listen,
0: the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
7: Welcome
3: back to the Dan Prof Show, as we've been attempting to do daily, try and end the show on an upbeat, uplifting note. A good story, a triumphant story, an aspirational story. Uh, this is a good one. Father and daughter Matt and Savannah Shaw, They're homebound choir practice has been canceled for young Savannah. She's a teenager in um, Kaysville, Utah. And it uh, turns out uh, that uh, Savannah's uh, got a great vocalist. So her dad, Matt. They're just uh, setting up an iPad, as their dad said. Neither of us have ever set foot in a real-life recording studio, so I don't know what's normal. But for us, normal is an iPad, a little mic that plugs into the iPad that we bought at the Apple Store. And they record the audio in the closet. They've been videoing. uh, uh, They do the video portion uh, filmed at their kitchen table. The videos they've been producing and posting on YouTube have gone viral in a good way, the good viral. uh, You're about to understand why. This is Matt and Savannah Shaw doing uh, the prayer from *Quest for Camelot*, and oh, by the way, as a quick aside, because I think I did this when um, we played Jonathan and Antoine last week with their version of the prayer. I, I, for some reason, I have in my head that's *Phantom of the Opera*, and it's not. I have got to confuse it confused with all I ask. I, all I ask of you, I don't, I don't know why I did that, but uh, I got caught on my Chicago's Morning answer program by a uh, fellow theater goer. It's not from *Phantom*. I'm Want to make that correction? quest for Camelot. Uh, David Foster wrote the song. Matt and Savannah, sing it.
15: I pray we'll find your love.
7: Let shadows fill our day,
11: when shadows fill our day, lead us to a place, guide us with your grace, to a place where we'll be saved.
13: Yeah,
3: that'll keep you sane this weekend, and uh, some other offerings, so you don't go full Jack Torrance yet. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the show, Ozark season three on Netflix, that's going to help a lot. See what Marty and Wendy Bird are up to. And also this from our friend Dennis Prager, colleague, and Adam Carolla. You know what I'm talking about. No Safe Spaces, the number one political documentary of 2019. Uh, For a limited time, you can watch No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com starring Prager, Carolla, uh, it's uh it's actually quite good uh, quite funny in addition to being quite good it's one of the reasons it's funny it has a 99 percent audience rating at rotten tomatoes.com i saw it in theaters last year it's really good uh it's uh a film that illustrates how america is exceptional it's a reminder about the values that uh, we try to reflect on this show and i know you try to reflect in your daily lives and it's an opportunity to support a film that shares those values so for a limited time Uh, This weekend, while you got some downtime, some sequester time, some time at the point of the gun from the state and places like Chicago, check out nosafespaces.com starring Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager, and have an enjoyable and safe weekend. Thank you so much. This is the Dan Proft Show.